Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. If defunding the police can't work and reforming the police takes forever, can American policing ever be fixed? Let's get to the bottom line. The murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis policeman last year was one of the sparks that led many communities across the United States to demand radical change in law enforcement. It started with lofty demands to abolish or defund the police. But that slogan proved divisive and impossible to implement. At the time, Joe Biden was the Democratic candidate for president, and he refused to adopt it. Police reform has been happening in different cities and states across the country, each at its own pace. Some have decriminalized marijuana to ease the racial inequality in drug arrests. Some have made it illegal for officers to see misconduct on the job without reporting it. And some have made it easier to sue officers personally for their wrongdoing. But is this enough to deal with the root causes of the problem? Or is it just scratching the surface? Today, we're joined by someone who's been focused on the history and practice of policing in the United States. Alex Vitale is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He's the author of The End of Policing, which comes out with a new edition with new material next month. Dr. Vitale, thank you so much for joining us today. Let me just start out and ask, you know, when, when your book was written, it was written three years before George Floyd's murder, before the murder of Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey. And, and it seemed to presciently recognize what was coming undone in public trust and public confidence in policing. Can you share with us what the key findings you had at that time on your, your important study of policing in America? Well, you know, after the police killings of Mike Brown and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and a number of folks in the period about seven years ago, we were told, don't worry, police are going to get reformed. President Obama had a national task force on 21st century policing that issued a huge raft of recommendations, and nothing has really changed. And so part of the motivation for writing the book was a deep skepticism about the effectiveness of a lot of the police reforms that have been proposed over the last several years, based really on 30 years of scholarship on policing, uh, both in the United States and internationally. And so my feeling was is that we need to ask some tougher questions about why so many problems that are really social in origin, economic in origin, have been turned over to policing to manage. You know, between a quarter and a half of all people killed by police in the United States are having a mental health crisis. We've got police filling our schools. We've got police disrupting homeless encampments, chasing young people off street corners. And they're just not the right tool to be addressing those kinds of social problems. So my feeling was, rather than investing more resources in trying to fix narcotics and homeless outreach units, that maybe we should develop real alternatives that directly address the underlying problems instead. Well, I want to read for our audience something that you wrote in your book. And you say, poor communities need better housing, jobs, and access to social health, recreational, and educational services. Yet local politicians continue to hold out more police and new, uh, new jails as the solution to community problems. So what, what you're really saying is, here is a part of our community that's under stress, that's having trouble, that has not been on the railroad track to success, and the answer is to contain them, to control them. Am I getting that right? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you look at what police actually do day in and day out, especially in poor and non-white communities, it is really the management of populations that have been at the losing end of a whole set of political and economic arrangements. You know, police are not solving homelessness. They're not solving people's mental health and substance abuse problems. They're not fixing our schools. They're trying to manage those problems through a system of criminalization. And rather than putting all of our eggs in that basket of policing, we need to diversify the strategies that we use to manage those problems, especially when those alternatives don't come with all the negative collateral consequences and baggage that are kind of inherent to policing. Now, Matthew Iglesias of Vox um, basically said that in your book, in the review he did, that there was so much he did agree with, but there were certain elements that he couldn't find how you were dealing with it, how you thought about violent crime in particular, that violent crime is a, is a problem out there. And then even in the last election, if you were to go and, and, and do a pretty you know, sober and, and, and dispassionate assessment, even of some communities that were largely black and brown, there was a concern about the defund the police slogan that somehow this would enhance or lead to conditions where violent crime would increase. What is your thought on the violent crime part of the security equation? And, and how do you get that, however you respond to that right, without creating this very dysfunctional and horrible set of negative effects of policing that you've outlined, in which I should say, Matt Iglesias said you're right on target. Yeah, so there there was a, a chapter in the original version of the book that dealt with youth violence, and I felt like I did address a lot of these things. But in response to Matthew's concerns, I have, in the new edition, have a, a much more extensive conversation directly about violence. And there are a few things to keep in mind here, right? Violence is not just one thing. Violence is a lot of different things, and the causes of it are different. And right now, the solution that we throw at it, all these different things, is policing. Domestic violence, terrorism, gang violence, beefs on the street, uh, uh, car accidents, all gets treated as violence to be solved in the same way through criminalization. So what, what my argument is, is that we need to first make some pretty concrete assessments about what is driving the harmful behavior in our communities. And then we need to look at strategies that address both individual level and community level drivers of that violence. And that means we need nuanced responses. If the problem is interpersonal violence, intimate partner violence in the home, you know, no amount of policing has been effective at addressing that. It's no amount of stop and frisk or, or assertive policing out of the streets is going to prevent some uh, intimate partner from harming their spouse or, or boyfriend or girlfriend in the privacy of their own home. So what are we doing to provide supports for families to help resolve what's driving the harmful behavior that's occurring there? And it's often a pattern that's repeated over an extended period of time. And when we use policing to manage that, what we find is that merely causes pe people, excuse me, to become reluctant to call 911 in the first place. Mm. Instead, we should be looking at community-based family support centers that have both outreach teams that can go into people's homes when they're requested, but also can serve as a place of respite, counseling, and provide crucial supports, income supports, mental health supports, substance abuse. Because what we find is that most people want to keep their families together. 
They don't want the partner criminalized, and they don't want police coming into their homes. And so most people don't call the police when they have these problems. So we need to get beyond this idea that the only possible tool that we could use to address violence problems is sending armed police. What are some of these other bank shots slash reforms that could really impact both the over-incarceration of people, but also uh, uh, the, the, the level of crime in this country and, and how to get dealing with crime right as opposed to wrong? Yeah, well, one area I think would be to rethink our use of police in schools. Hmm. Almost every single study ever done shows that th that form of policing is not effective in producing safety, that it creates a school-to-prison pipeline that overreacts to discipline problems in schools, and instead, we need to get back to having counselors and social workers and mentors and coacher, coaches and teachers' aides directly dealing with why students are acting disruptively. We need to look at restorative justice programs that involve young people in the co-production of safe schools. You know, when, when I tell my colleagues in Europe about the extent of school policing in the United States, they think we're crazy. Mm. They would never treat their own children in that way. We need to also look at things like the decriminalization of sex work. Vice units have been notoriously both ineffective, corrupt, and abusive in their efforts to control what is essentially consensual sex work. We need to look at places like New Zealand that ha and parts of Australia that have legalized and decriminalized sex work. The outcomes have been very positive. You mentioned marijuana, but, but voters last November in Oregon, in the state of Oregon, voted to decriminalize all drugs at low levels following the model of Portugal. And the Portuguese have had full decriminalization of drugs for many years now and are very happy with the results. And finally, we need to rebuild some kind of real community-based mental health infrastructure, including crisis response capacity that's not rooted in armed policing. But I also know that you consult with lots of police departments on the other side of that line, so to speak. I'd be really interested in your insights, your experiences. How do police departments look at what you're counseling and offering, and what do you share with them as some of the best practices they could begin taking their existing infrastructure and scaffolding on policing and begin moving it in a different direction? Well, you know, there are a lot of police who don't want to be in the mental health business, who don't want to be in the homelessness business. They understand the profound limitations of using policing to address those problems. And I talked to many police who express great frustration because their cities lack any real infrastructure for addressing those problems so that when communities are negatively impacted, their quality of life is affected by those problems, they make demands of the police that the police are unable to adequately respond to. So they end up wasting thousands of staff hours chasing homeless people around the block and endlessly responding to the same person in mental health distress without ever really addressing those people's underlying problems. So there is an openness among police departments to try to figure out how to reduce their exposure to those problems. And that's why we're seeing a growing number of cities in the U.S. embracing the creation of non-police 
crisis response teams that can respond to 911 calls that have to do with mental health, substance abuse, and homelessness. And the results of these programs so far have been extremely positive. You know, another another dimension which I think you foresaw in the in the book that you wrote before, at least before the more recent crimes that we've seen there is, but as you pointed out, there were other deaths earlier, of course. But we have um, unfolding right now is the some of the criminal proceedings and the trials in the Ahmed Arbery case in Georgia, in which uh, allegedly uh, a few people actually uh, trailed and tracked this runner through town, uh, allegedly executing him. Uh, and then there was a cover-up locally. And it raises this interesting question about law enforcement and, and to what degree it looks like us and it shares the value of us. And then I raise the question of who is us? What is us in a community in Georgia? Who and what is us in a community in Baltimore or, you know, wherever it may be? And I'm just interested in this, this tension between, you know, in, 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 uh, uh, outside St. Louis in Ferguson, uh, of looking at Ferguson and just seeing no very, very few members of the black community in the police forces. Have you thought a lot, and what are your thoughts on basically beginning to um, much more expeditiously make sure police forces look like and feel like and, and value the things that the communities that they're policing do? Well, you know, in the early years of the Obama administration, there was a lot of kind of self-congratulatory backslapping that maybe the U.S. had reached some kind of post-racial moment. That, that we were going to be a colorblind society. And I think the events over the last few years involving uh, the differential response to police violence, has, as well as what's happened with national politics, et cetera, has kind of put that myth to bed. You know, the United States continues to struggle with major problems of racial discrimination and racial inequality. And policing has been one of the central mechanisms in the history of our country of maintaining that color line. And I'm not just talking about the deep history of slavery and Jim Crow. I'm talking about today and the way that the problems of communities of color are redefined as problems of crime to be managed by intensive and invasive policing rather than receiving the kinds of social services that would help lift people up repair past harms, address traumas, et cetera. Hiring a few more black police officers and brown police officers is not going to fix that problem. The research is pretty clear that at best, a few cities have shown you know, very minor improvements in a few measures, but most departments, when they hire more black and brown officers, see no change in the use of force, arrest rates, community satisfaction, and all the rest. So we really need to get at these deeper issues of racial inequality in the United States and quit focusing on kind of superficial, symbolic responses. Um, Alex, what did 9-11 do? I mean, 9-11 is as part of this story as well because of the massive spending on military gear um, for wars abroad, you know, in many ways, non-conventional wars abroad. But I'd be interested, because you've written about what happened with a lot of that hardware. Yeah, so 9-11 did a few things. Uh, one is that it kind of closed the door on any community-based criticism of policing, which there was during the period before that, concerns about the ramping up of stop and frisk and hotspot policing and gang policing. 
And it also contributed to a kind of popular culture that said that, you know, whatever flaws there might be policing, we need to give them a green light to do whatever it is they think they need to do to keep us safe. And one of the consequences of that was the ramping up of the transfer of military hardware from the Department of Defense and defense contractors directly to civilian police departments. And this is what directly led to the kind of images we saw in Ferguson after the killing of Mike Brown, which was the intensive policing and suppression of protest activities from armored vehicles and sniper rifles and Kevlar body armor and all the rest. And I think that uh, this has really raised a red flag for a lot of Americans about why we're creating police forces with the same hardware as our military. One of the uh, really astounding pieces of data out there, which you've referred to, is that in the global prison population, America has 25% of that, while it only has 5% of the world's population. And so after wherever those people are in America's prison population, they're going to have uh, uh, prison records, uh, uh, criminal records, you know, that trail them, that, that become balls and chains around them as they proceed through their life. I mean, this, uh, you know, when I sort of looking at that and coming to terms with it, it sounded like the ways in which we used to talk about, you know, communist systems or the old, old Soviet Union, you know, in cer certain ways, at least in my book. And I'm just interested in what the... Uh, uh, what do you think is the reason why there's not broader social recognition of how troubling that number is of the number of people we've incarcerated? Well, I think actually there, there is a growing sense that incarceration rates are too high in the U.S. The trouble is people are divided about what to do about it. So I think there's, there's polling data that shows Americans think our, our incarceration rate is too high. But what's been lacking is a clear plan for what to do instead. And that's a lot of what this current movement is trying to articulate, mm. whether we call it defund the police or community reinvestment. We're really talking about trying to develop new infrastructures of public safety that don't rely on the collateral consequences of mass incarceration. You know, our, our knee-jerk reaction to every social problem has been, well, put more people in prison. Right. And it's really been a kind of mass warehousing of the problem, not a solution. Well, one of those elements of that, of that move is, you know, we end up with, like, a, a situation where there's been a privatization movement in the prison sector. There are about 150,000 people incarcerated in private prisons. President Biden said he wants to end that. Where, where are we in the—I know you, you've weighed in on the private prison um, problem as well. Where are you in terms of thinking of where we might go with that? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that in terms of prison populations, the, the private prisons are only responsible for about 5 or 10 percent of all prison capacity. The mo private prisons in the U.S. are primarily used to hold immigration detainees. So even if we got rid of all private prisons today, we, we have none, for instance, here in New York State, that wouldn't really make a big impact on the overall levels of incarceration. I think it's more symbolic. This idea that we've turned prisons into a profit center is deeply troubling. But really, there's a bigger politics involved here, which is that elected officials have used policing and mass incarceration to promote a kind of politics that lets them off the hook 
for producing the kinds of economic problems that are associated with the problems that are being criminalized. So they, they, we've had this politics of austerity for decades now that has defunded essential social services in favor of providing tax breaks to the rich, incentives to very successful corporations. And we need to reverse that politics and quit trying to fix our problems through policing and incarceration, whether they're privatized or not. You know, I have um, had the privilege of interviewing uh, former governors like uh, Governor Chris Christie and others after the George Floyd murder and about the question of police reform. And Governor Christie, uh, you know, who's a controversial character, nonetheless told me, look, there are going to be police departments that you have, to, you have to tear them apart down to the base. And he's told the story of Camden, New Jersey. And he said, we had real problems with training. We had real problems. And we had a problem there that we couldn't fix. We had to go down and build it back from the base up and, and create a very, very different kind of department and rebuild trust with the community. Um, and I've heard, I know as we even described the show today and talking and reading your material, that the uh, uh, police situation, the trust is very uneven. And there are some police departments talking to you. I guess my question, I'm always interested in show and tell, is, are there places that stand out to you now in America that ought to be looked at, that are getting the equation right, that have begun to move in directions that you think are healthier and smarter than, than the structures we've had before when it came to policing? Well, I think for me, it's not so much a question of what's happening within police departments. The question is really the ways in which cities as a whole are rethinking holistically their overall approach to public safety. I think that um, despite some false starts summer a year ago, Minneapolis remains, for instance, a really interesting place to look at. They're currently uh, going to have a referendum about redoing their charter that, in a way that would allow them to significantly shift resources out of policing and into a variety of new public safety initiatives, mm. community-based violence reduction programs, alternative forms of traffic enforcement, increased civilian mental health outreach, uh, crisis response teams, et cetera. Uh, similar movements are underway in a lot of cities, Oakland, Albuquerque, Austin, Texas. Uh, we have a number of pilot programs here in New York along these lines. So there are a lot of cities, I think, because of the pressure that we've seen over the last several years who are beginning to try to figure out how to do this. Well, listen, we'll have to leave it there. What a fascinating conversation. Professor Alex Vitale of Brooklyn College, author of The End of Policing and Watch for the New Edition next month. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Steve. So what's the bottom line? Our guest today has some really thoughtful ideas on reforming policing and prisons. It's promising that there are some cities out there sending experts like social workers instead of police when they get certain types of emergency calls. That just seems smarter to me, and fewer innocent people are going to die. The vast number of encounters between the public and their police officers are positive and helpful. We've got to put that on the record. But there will always be law enforcement officials that abuse that power in lawless ways. At the same time, faced with a violent life and death situation, who are you going to call? Americans are never going to abolish a police, but they will change how they work. The change won't be even across the entire country. Each city and state is going to have to decide what they want, and their citizens will have to be vigilant and demand accountability for years to come if they really want real change. That's the beauty and the headache of democracy. And that's the bottom line.